I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live right now, or later, or our podcast online. Come on back to your seats. We've got a good crew in the house today. It's a good problem when everybody likes to talk too much, right? Certain churches, people don't like each other. It's easy to get everybody back to their seats. <laughs> Coffee break. <laughs> Come on back, everybody. All right. Happy Christmas and a happy new year. I hope you had a wonderful um, time of celebration. Um, it's 2019. That sounds weird. Has anybody accidentally written 2018 already? Yeah. It's we, I, every single January, I, writing the, the next year, it just feels so weird in my head. I don't know what to do with it. Um, man, 2018, that went fast. Did it go faster than anybody else? You know the phrase, the days are long, but the years are short? Anybody relate to that? Last year felt like each day just crawled by, but 2018 just like, it's crazy how fast that went. Man, it's so fast. I'm thrilled to begin today. Um, We're starting a new January sermon series called Freedom and Discipline. Uh, This is going to be a fun month. Actually, before I even jump into that, I want to I want to share something. We've been we from September through December, we did a Beyond Us initiative. If you're not aware of what that was, we were aiming to raise twenty thousand dollars to go to Beyond Us initiatives, outside initiatives, working um, on local and global mission, um, everything from orphanage work to anti-human trafficking work to church ministry work. I'm happy to announce we raised twenty thousand five hundred dollars. So awesome. Great job. Um, thank you to everybody who gave and sacrificially gave towards that. Um, I'm so, so excited to be able to write checks and send them out. There's some such good work that's going to be done outside of our church because of that. And local work, too. Part of that money is to local work here through our church. So thank you for being a part of that. Again, Freedom and Discipline, this is our sermon series. Over the next four weeks, we're going to delve into some spiritual disciplines. And in case you're not familiar with the term, Spiritual disciplines are spiritual exercises. They're, uh, they're, there's a, the critical, a critical component to understanding what the spiritual disciplines are about is, the, is seeing them as part of our training. They're, they're disciplines, they're exercises that are training us into Christ's likeness. So, for example, Amanda and I ran the Hollywood Half Marathon a few years back. And to do so, I had to enter into training because I was always a sprinter growing up. I was not a long distance runner. Before I started, I could not run 13 miles. Not even close. Before I started, I could run two, maybe three, 13. I probably would have lost a lung. So I started training for six weeks. I trained for it. And I ran two miles, and I got up to four, and I got up to eight, and up to 11. And eventually, I was able to run 13 miles. 13 miles became possible for my body. If I tried to run 13 miles on the first day of my training, I would hurt myself. At that point, effort, grit, how much I wanted it, it didn't mean squat. My body needed to enter into a training. It didn't matter how much I wanted to run 13 miles. My body would not have enabled me to run 13 miles. What my body needed was a slow and a steady endurance, a strength, a capacity that was stretched through training. 
So similarly, the spiritual disciplines, they stretch our character, they strengthen our spirits over time. They cause us to, to collide with God and in, in such a way that it offers us new wholeness and new power and new freedom. Freedom that used to be outside of our grasp, outside of the realm of possibility for us. So this is what we're, gonna, we're jumping into for the next month. We're going to talk about discovering freedom in discipline. Now, there are more popular disciplines they're, they're widely talked about, but spiritual disciplines are just, they're, they're a theme that's been part of the church and church history for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. But there are ones that are celebrated a little bit more, talked about a little bit more, like Bible reading and prayer and fasting and worship. And there are lesser talked about spiritual disciplines. And these are some of the ones that we're going to zone in on for the next four weeks for this series. I wanna, we're going to touch on four disciplines, four exercises that will train us spiritually, setting us up for freedom, these exercises that are going to stretch our power for spirituality, to actually live how Jesus intended we live. We live. Next week, we're going to cover silence and solitude. The following week, we're going to cover confession. And the last Sunday in January, we're going to talk about celebration. Today, I want to preach a message entitled Freedom in Simplicity. Freedom in Simplicity. Now, often, simplicity gets worked out in two primary modes, possessions and your calendar. Simplicity of what you own and simplicity of what you do. However, what I'm not going to do today is simply encourage you to get rid of some of your stuff and create more space in your calendar. Because while that would be generally helpful, I could preach a message, a Bible-based message that was challenging about owning less and doing less, yet ignore the deeper reality that informs what you own and what you do. Why are we so compelled to fill our lives with unnecessary possessions, to fill our calendars with unnecessary events? There's something deeper at work. There's a, there's a concealed root that informs how and why we continue to fill our lives with more. You see, we buy into a narrative that tells us we need more. You don't have enough. You don't do enough. What you do have, it doesn't satisfy. You could be more if you had more. And what you do doesn't satisfy either. You could be more if you did more. We're hit with, this, with constant barrages fueled by the fear of missing out, fueled by savage capitalism, fueled by comparison and ego and insecurity. Our, our culture bombards us with this external narrative telling us that more is better that's my little boy right there. <laughs> dad, dad. What I hope you walk away with today is this. When your inner narrative is shaped by external voices, you'll saturate your life with non-essentials. When your inner narrative is shaped by external voices, you'll saturate your life with non-essentials. Non-essential things non-essential busyness. So today, we're not just examining the decisions we make to fill our lives with more. We're going to go after the deeper, more subversive how we make decisions. Not just what we own or how busy our schedules are, because we can edit that. You realize that, right? You can easily change that. You can quickly own less stuff. You can quickly do less things yet neglect the root that's causing you to fill your life with the unnecessary. I want to get at the source. 
What's convincing us that we need more? What narrative are we choosing to believe that says who we are is not enough, what we have is not enough, what we do is not enough? It stems from external voices. It stems from not being in touch with the internal God-breathed story that is built into each one of us. So that's what we're going to attack today. Now, here's the thing. Generally speaking, everything you've learned in life, every skill, every talent, you started out as a beginner, which means everything you're currently skilled at, it likely started with imitation. You watched someone else do something, it gave you confidence or a drive to try it out, and you mimicked what you saw. Sure, there are prodigies, right? Most of us are not prodigies. You just jump on something and bam, you're a professional at it. That doesn't happen generally. Generally speaking, everything you can do that you're competent at right now, it started out as mimicry. Someone modeled it for you, and then you repeated what you saw. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually how we learn. It's a, it's a good thing. When I first started drumming in sixth grade, I got on a drum set, and I repeated what I saw other people do. I tried to make the sounds that I heard other people play. I watched videos. I tried to attempt to use the technique that I saw them do. When I first got into specialty coffee, I bought a pour-over. I bought this Hario V60. I bought a really nice grinder. And I tried to mimic what I saw baristas do. I wanted to use the same technique they did. I wanted to try to replicate the same recipes. When I first started preaching, I repeated what I saw my dad and my mentors do. I tried to replicate their techniques, their sermon types. I took their concepts, sometimes even their sermons in my younger years, and I preached what I saw. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually it's how we learn. We watch someone more skilled than us, and we mimic what they do. It gets us moving in the right direction. Or I think of language. My son Shiloh, he's the one talking back there. He turns one today. Today is his birthday, right? It's so awesome. And he talks kind of. You heard him just a minute ago. He says, Dada. It's his first word. He said, Mama. A couple times he said his own name. A couple times he said his sister's name, Aria. But at this point, it's all imitation. It's all mimicry. He hears us talk. He has no idea what the, what the sounds are meaning. He's just simply echoing what he's hearing other people say, or he's trying to, right? His older sister, Aria, she turns four this month. She's always asking why. She'll hear a word she doesn't understand. She's like, what does that mean? She's so curious, and at this point, she's learning the right words in, in certain situations. Where do I use that word correctly? But eventually, maturity is going to mean evolving beyond knowing the right words just for the right situations to her having her own voice. Growing up, it means developing your voice, your expression of life and creativity beyond the voices that, that you imitated for so long. So I can now sit down on a drum set and I can create beats that I've never heard before. I can create something new on the spot. I can get in front of a, a brewer and I can create a recipe I've never seen someone do, I've never seen someone play with before. I can preach an idea or a concept that I didn't get from someone else. It all started with imitation, but it developed into personal expression of my internal reality. Does that make sense? Our internal, our internal voice, it always begins as an echo. 
It's someone else's voice spoken into us, and we're living out that echo, and it's okay. It's how we get moving in the right direction. It's how we activate our skills and our talents and our, and our passions. But maturity, it requires that we transcend the echo. Because if we can't transcend it, our souls just become this reverberation of someone else's soul. Our souls just become a vibration of someone else's passion. Does that make sense? I love the concept of soul, this word nephesh, the Hebrew word, and it means all that makes you, you. Your intellect, your will, your physical body, your desires, your dreams, your wounds, your strengths, your fears, the entire makeup that God sees as you, that's the soul. And what I find truly fascinating about it is how impressionable it is. For how powerful, for how potent the soul is, it's equally pliable and formable. This is why words have some, so much power. Astonishing influence. The, words can shape a person's reality. Maybe you grew up in a healthy home. You were told how loved you were frequently. You were affirmed. You were given permission to flourish, empowered to chase your dreams. Maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional home. You were told how much of a screw-up you are frequently. You were belittled or tolerated or neglected, pressured to perform, discouraged from ever chasing your dreams. No doubt, words have impacted you. Words have influenced you. Whether you realize it or not, the words used by individuals you love and individuals you despise, words they chose to speak to you and over you, they have affected you, maybe even infected you. Words have shaping power. They shape the narrative we believe about reality. They shape the story we buy into about what kind of world this is and where this is all going. They shape the, the story we believe about our lives, about our abilities and our future. And in my opinion, this internal narrative, this story, it's actually what causes most people to recycle their pain and their trauma and their struggle and their dysfunction. Of course, life is challenging. Life is hard. No matter where you're living, no matter who you are, life's going to be hard. But more than just grappling with difficult circumstances, I watch people grapple with that internal narrative. The story that they've come to accept or believe that infects every area of their life. You're not good enough. You're not needed enough. You're not resilient or fun or sexy or successful or happy enough. Words have power. Power over the soul. It's a profound mystery. But the deeper mystery, I think, is that words, they only have as much power as we give them. The voices that want to quiet your voice and break you and make you insignificant and irrelevant, their power is achieved only when you give the power for their voice to become your voice. What others think of us, it matters. What they say of us, it matters. But it only achieves power over us when what they say about us and what they think about us becomes what we say and think about ourselves. So one of the defining moments of our lives, maybe even defining seasons, is when we will decide what voice will define us and what story we will allow to guide our reality. And it's defining because the narrative we choose to believe that determines our experience of freedom. 
I know I'm going for it this morning. Are you guys with me? <laughs> like, we just jumped right in. Like, we went for it. Freedom. It has nothing to do with external circumstances. You ever seen someone that was, I mean, they appeared trapped in a situation with, with no options, totally bound by their reality, yet internally they looked so absolutely free? Like they weren't giving permission for that situation to define their reality. Or the opposite. You ever see someone with, with seemingly limitless freedom, yet because of it they appeared so bound by the things that internally controlled them. Freedom is an internal narrative. And until your inner voice is telling you a story of freedom, nothing in the world is going to make you free. And this is why Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He didn't say truth will set you free, because truth doesn't set people free. Truth exists, and still... Many people are bound, they're restrained, they find themselves powerless. Encountering truth, colliding with truth in a personal way, that sets people free. The inner story you follow, the voices that you allow to become your own, that's going to determine your experience of freedom in life. So the question we got to ask is what's your inner guiding narrative for your life? And if we take it one level deeper, where did you get that narrative? Who handed it to you? And is it empowering you or is it debilitating you? I want to come at this from another angle. I want to take a look at the book of Genesis, our origin story. The book of Genesis is just a really fun book to read. There's some really hard books in the Old Testament to read. Genesis is one of the fun ones. It's just got some really fun stories in there. And the first three chapters of the Bible are some of my favorite in the entire book. Because if we learn to hold this thing up as a mirror, it's, it's eerie how much their story is actually our story. It's just like, oh, man, like this is like, he's telling me my story right here. And here's what goes down in the first few chapters. God creates. I love it. He speaks and formless takes shape. He speaks and galaxies come flying out of his mouth. He speaks and life is born. God creates man. He takes dirt and he breathes divine spirit, divine breath into him. Soul is formed. It's this combination of dirt and spirit. And then you know what God does? So fascinating. He brings man into the creative process. God invites man to name every animal. And whatever man named them, that's what they were called. You know why this is so significant? Adam was told something that day, that his voice mattered. Not that he had a voice, but that his voice helped shape reality. That his voice got to join God in determining reality. Then God makes woman. He makes a whole bunch of good stuff. He calls it all good. God makes man. And he says, this is not good because man is alone. So scripture says God gives him a helper. And the Hebrew translates an equivalent help. I don't like the word helper in a lot of the translations. It sounds like a kindergartner helper. Like God sends a little helper over to Adam. It's not like that. It's like an equivalent help. It's a counterpart or an equal partner. 
God creates man, he creates woman, and collectively they are to join God in the ongoing creation of the world. All he asks is that they avoid one thing. Please, don't eat from the tree. (laughs) The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have fun in this garden. Enjoy all this beauty that's surrounding you. Go cultivate it. Go rule over it. Have a bunch of sex, too. Just don't eat from that tree. Because if you eat from it, you will die. And then the serpent, the crafty beast, he causes them to question God's voice. What the servant does is he offers a competing narrative for reality. He says, you won't die if you eat that tree from that tree. God just doesn't want you to see the world the way he does. You'll finally be like him. And he wants to remain superior to you. The serpent causes them to question God's intentions. His voice will not produce life in you. He's holding out on you. God is keeping the best for himself. He's holding it behind his back. So they eat from the tree, and in doing so, they silence God's voice, and they consent to a a different narrative, a competing narrative. And what happens? We call it the fall. The beginning of humanity's breakdown. We were made for shalom, for wholeness. And this is the moment that our wholeness begins to fracture and break itself apart and implode on itself. And I want to show you how it goes down. This is in Genesis 3, right after they eat from the tree. Starting in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, you put me here, you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate it. And then jumping to verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Immediate consequences of the, of the fall. Fear, hiding, shame, blame, and the misuse of power. Like that. Fear, hiding, shame, blame, the misuse of power. God says, man, what happened? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. But it was the woman's fault, who, by the way, you put here with me. Woman, what happened? The serpent, it was his fault. Then man names wife Eve. If you remember, the man was invited to name all the animals before the fall. God gave humanity rule, power, dominion over the earth. But after the fall, the man points that power at his wife. He points that authority over her. He exercises rule over the woman. I'm going to name you now. Fear, 
hiding, shame, blame, the misuse of power. And you know what? It hasn't changed that much. These are default modes of operating in our world. I love God's response, though. Who told you that you were naked? I created you. You lacked nothing. Why the need to cover yourself? Why the need to hide? Whose voice did you replace my voice with? What new story have you embraced that has left you dying and broken now? You see, somewhere along the line, someone told us we were naked. That God created us with lack. That we need to choose fear and hiding and shame and blame and the misuse of power because it's the only way to get along in this world. Someone told us we were naked. That God doesn't get it. That he's holding out on us. That God's voice in us will not produce life. That God's voice has selfish and ulterior motives. Someone told us we were naked. That authenticity and vulnerability and intimacy, that these are just nice words for weakness. But when we choose to listen to this voice, you know where we find ourselves? Hiding in the trees. Afraid to show up anywhere just as we are. When we choose to listen to this voice, our souls become an echo, merely repeating through our lives a story someone else has told us. Who told you that you were naked? This is the question God asks, not just Adam and Eve, but all humanity. Who told you that you were naked? What narrative have you embraced that has left you dying and broken now? We have to realize that external voices, even the helpful ones, they're eventually going to fail us. Eventually, they're going to convince us that we are smaller than we are or that we are greater than we are. Eventually, they're going to push us in one of those directions. I love there's this an old 19th century rabbi, and he'd always carried with him two slips of paper in his pockets. On one, he wrote, for my sake, the world was created. And on the other, he wrote, I am merely dust and ashes. And he would pull out a slip of paper as a reminder, depending on the situation, on what was stirring internally, on what voice he was giving power in that moment. He would reach into his pocket, he'd pull out a piece of paper, and he'd read it to himself. For my sake, the world was created. I was thought of in eternity. Divinity is in my DNA. Or, other pocket, I'm merely dust and ashes. I'm a small story in this grand narrative. I'm completely replaceable. You see, neither self-disgust nor self-promotion are going to offer you wholeness. Until God's voice vibrates deep in your bones, fiercer than the external voices that are shouting at you, until that happens, wholeness, freedom, they're going to stand beyond your reach. Whose voice is your inner voice? And this is crucial because that inner voice is going to determine the story that you tell with your life. That voice, that narrative... It, just, it doesn't just inform you of who you are. It also affects everything that you touch, everything that you shape. Ultimately, that inner narrative is going to be the driving force through which you shape the world around you. And so we come back to simplicity. When your inner narrative is shaped by external voices, you'll saturate your life with non-essentials. 
You see, most of us have grown up with a capitalist worldview. Accumulation, consumption, greed. And it's difficult for us to see it as a broken way of living in the world because it's the dominant worldview of our culture. I consume, therefore I am. I, pers- I, I possess, therefore I am. I, I produce, therefore I am. These are superficial signs of, su- of success. Superficial signs of value and significance, and it entices us to believe that more is better. But more is better is a more devastating way of life than we realize. It ignites individualism in us, and competition, and hoarding, and inequality, and exploitation, and obsession, and oppression. What our culture can't seem to grasp is that less makes more room for soul. Less possessions makes more room for soul. I don't know if you noticed this, but people who have more aren't necessarily more happy or content in life. In fact, it kind of seems to be the opposite. Ironically, the more we own, the less we enjoy. You ever experienced that about like a, like a collection or something? I remember when I first started collecting vinyl records. I had one or two or three, and I was like, I love these records. And now I've got like 30 or 40 or whatever, and I'm like, that's my collection. You know, like, <laughs> like the more you get, the less you value that one sometimes. You know, like it's like the, the one, the value of the one gets lost when the, when the stuff grows. And this is the danger of materialism. The more we project desire onto things, the more things disappoint us. Because deep and abiding joy, true contentment, it's an inside job. Looking for these things externally, it always leaves us unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And what our culture can't, can't seem to grasp is that simpler, simpler schedules also makes room for more soul. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who are busier aren't necessarily more happy or content. In fact, it seems to be quite the opposite. Now, I do want to acknowledge, I think there's a difference, there's a world difference between being busy and being hurried. Being busy is an, is an outer condition. It's an external. We have many things to do. We have many things to accomplish. And living in L.A., honestly, I think it's kind of inevitable, really. Our culture is a busy culture. And it's not necessarily a harmful thing. And to add to it, there are busier seasons than other seasons. 2018 was really hard for our family. We have two kids under four years old, and we're leading a church. 2018 was demanding. It was very busy. But when busy becomes the norm, when busy becomes the expectation, it speeds up the inner pace. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Something in here, it's like the the treadmill goes faster. We go to Clovis. That's where her family lives. We go to Clovis every once in a while. We were there for a week. And it's like the, the treadmill speed just comes down. It's like, oh, I can breathe again. And then as soon as we hit L.A. County, it goes up again. Man. When busy becomes the norm and the expectation, that speed turns up, and it's a little addictive. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of an opiate. There's something that kicks on in you. But when busy becomes the lifeblood, the only way to maintain a busy schedule for long periods of time is when, is when our spirit becomes hurried. And hurry is a sickness. It's an inner condition. It's a disposition of the soul. It's kind of a virus. And because when we're hurried, we can't be present right now. 
When we're hurried, we lose sense of what God is doing in this moment. When we're hurried, we lose touch with the person that's standing right in front of us because we're moving to the next thing. It squeezes out meaning and growth in God. So the discipline of simplicity comes into play here. In simplicity, we push back against more. We push back against busier, and in doing so, over time, remember this is a discipline, this is a training, over time, we're offered divine contentment. So we see David in Scripture. He writes this psalm, this song, and he sings it. He sings, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Oh, that's so nice. That's cute. How many people do you know live and believe, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing? Not just have this memorized, but their lives are an expression of it. The Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the breather that keeps this thing going, the creator of the soul, he's my shepherd. And because of that, I don't lack for a thing in this life. Simplicity and contentment beyond more. Beyond possessions, beyond status, beyond hurry, beyond capitalism. It's freedom. It's freeing. It's life-giving. Albert Camus, he wrote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to be so absolutely free that your very act of existence is an act of rebellion. That's good. Freedom in simplicity as an act of rebellion against the world's games. In simplicity, we place ourselves outside of the ability of others to buy us off control us by status or profit or gain. In simplicity, the immigrant and the refuge and the homeless and the other, they're not a threat to us. In simplicity, workaholism appears less enticing. Social standing less appealing. In simplicity, people cease to be possessions to be consumed. They cease to be tools to serve us to admire us, to stroke our egos, or be controlled by us. In simplicity, we stop filtering who is worthy of our time, who's worthy of our efforts and our love, because we realize we're not worthy either. Slowly, surely, we find ourselves free, free to love. This is freedom in simplicity. But I also want to shoot straight with you. It does not come easy. It takes incredible resolve. It requires a tenacious Discipline, because here, this is so important. This exercising simplicity, it means we have to go to war with the external voices. We have to go to war with the voices that are trying to shape our reality, our narrative. It is a battle of voices, and it is a bloody battle. Erwin McManus, he jokes, the difference between sanity and insanity. The sane man can identify all the voices in his head. The insane man thinks all the voices are his. Whether or not we realize it, our souls are overcrowded with voices. Voices that are demanding our attention and our loyalty and our money and our surrender. So if we're not attentive to that, our lives just become echoes. They just become imitations of someone else's story, of someone else's soul, someone else's narrative. And when that happens, we fill our lives with stuff. We fill our lives with busyness and with hurry, unnecessary to our becoming, unnecessary to our wholeness, unnecessary to our freedom. To live simply, we must dig. 
we got to find out which voice, which voices are ours, which one has power, which ones have power over us, which narrative we're believing that is shaping our, re- our reality. And if you can go to war with that, if you can muster the courage to choose simplicity as a discipline, freedom will make itself available to you. Freedom to be and to do as you feel led, not how others think you were supposed to feel led. We get, we're offered freedom from the world's games of promotion and greed and accumulation and power, freedom of soul, freedom and simplicity. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to go into a time of worship through response and prayer of song and silence and meditation. They're going to sing. And I don't know what's going on in your heart and in your mind, in your soul right now, in your spirit, in your subconscious even. God does. And I don't know what you need right now. My encouragement is to lean into it. If you just need to think, if you need to dig at what those voices are and where they came from, if you need to sing, if you need to be sung over, we're also going to have a couple prayers in the back by the connection table. If you need someone to stand with you and pray with you, a brother or a sister in Christ who will lift up your needs and your heart and your voice before the Father as well. To close, Picasso. He claimed one of his earliest memories was the narrative spoken into him by his mother. This is what he said. My mother said to me, if you're a soldier, you'll become a general. If you're a monk, you'll become the pope. Instead, I was a painter, and I became Picasso. I wonder what our world would look like. I mean, even just L.A. I wonder what L.A. would look like if that was our inner narrative. A voice internally that set us free. If our inner expressions were echoes, not of culture's voice, but of God's voice, the one that's been built into us, what kind of world would we co-create with God? Because we're still naked, but we're finding ourselves afraid and hiding and shamed and blaming others and fighting and misusing power. We still find ourselves hiding behind the trees, behind what we accumulate, behind how we fill our calendars, behind how we project all of it to other people. And the competing voices are telling us more is the remedy. To be whole, you need more. But it's misinformed. And it's a damaging voice. So today, I submit to you a call to live simply. Not just minimalism not just less busy lives, but to dig deep and to go to war with the voices that are attempting to shape your narrative. And rather than trying to find freedom in more, to find freedom in simplicity. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for another opportunity to encounter you, to encounter your voice. And I pray that in this moment, you would set us free 
from the things that bind us, from the things that control us, from the voices, maybe voices that we've heard since we were babies that have defined our reality and our story, but have damaged us all along the way. God, would you fill us with a new voice? Would you make, would you tune our ears into your voice that's speaking life and love and freedom and wholeness into our hearts? So we give you permission, God, to do whatever you want to do in this room right now. Your kingdom come in our church, in this room, in our hearts as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.